president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. We don't want John or Dean or Harry, let's do that big job right. Welcome to the Bridge Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 34, Dwight Eisenhower, the Liberator of Europe. You know Dwight Eisenhower. He's the guy who won World War II, or so the story goes. Supreme Allied Commander. It doesn't get much bigger than that. But did he win the war through a masterly grasp of military strategy and tactics? Or was it actually a nascent gift for politics that won the war, an ability to influence others to achieve the objectives he was aiming for. Whatever it was, victory brought Eisenhower fame and the promise of a career in politics. Both parties wanted him, the Republicans got him, but Senate Democrats ended up being his most reliable allies. It's an interesting life. From humble beginnings, let's begin the story about a scrawny kid from Denison, Texas, who grew up to save Europe, lead the nation, and preside over the Cold War. David Dwight Eisenhower, that's right, his name's David, was born on March 31, 1948 in Denison, Texas, to a family experiencing extreme poverty. His father was difficult to deal with, a bit of a loafer, a black sheep. Eisenhower's dad abandoned his family and ran off to Texas when his wife Ida was pregnant with Ike, only for Ida to track him down in the town of Denison and give birth to David Dwight there. The name of Ike's father? Also David, which is why, to avoid confusion, Ida later legally switched the order of her son's names from David Dwight to Dwight David, and that's how David became Dwight. When it came time for college, Dwight, who also went by Ike, short for Eisenhower, had no money to go, but he did have a friend with a smart idea. The service academies, West Point and Annapolis, they didn't just offer free tuition, they also offered a guaranteed job in the military after you graduated. That sounded like a pretty damn good deal to poor young Eisenhower, so he said, sign me up, contacted his local senator, fibbed about his age to make his application more appealing, he claimed he was 19 when he was actually 20, and then he beat his competitors in an entrance exam. Just like that, Ike was a West Point cadet, and boy did he pick the perfect time to enroll. Ike's class of 1915 would be known as the class the stars fell on. Of the 115 graduates still on active duty when World War II started, 60 became generals, with Ike the most successful among them. But that doesn't mean the road from 1915 to World War II was an easy one. World War I was obviously right around the corner at graduation. It was already raging in Europe, and the Americans would be in it soon enough. But World War I would be the easy part. Finding success in the diminished peacetime army after World War I? That would be the hard part. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
Because before we get to World War I and the challenging decades that followed it, a fresh out of West Point Eisenhower was deployed to San Antonio, Texas, where he was ordered to coach local football teams because the Army considered it good PR. And he was pretty good at it too, taking a winless team to a 5-1-1 record. But more importantly, San Antonio is where Dwight met his wife, Mamie Dowd. Mamie Dowd was the daughter of a wealthy meatpacking family that had been in the Americas since the 17th century. Her father didn't believe in educating women, so instead of high school, she was sent to finishing school, where she learned to dance, charm, and host. Mamie once said, quote, Most people are raised to do something. I wasn't. The pair married on July 1st, 1916, had two children together, one of whom tragically died, and soon realized their marriage was an unhappy one. Divorce would be threatened numerous times. Ike likely cheated on Mamie at least once, and she never would be really brought in and involved in his politics or his career. It's kind of sad. On April 6, 1917, the U.S. entered World War I. But entering the war didn't necessarily mean entering the war. The United States would need nearly a year to draft and train an army before American soldiers could enter the fray. Eisenhower, three years out of West Point, was soon asked to form the first training camp for a newfangled weapon called the tank on the old Gettysburg battlefield. Before he knew it, he was running a camp of 10 thousand soldiers, and all at the age of 27. Whoa! Then, a year later, the moment Ike had been waiting for. Orders to Europe. Finally, the glory and action he was hungry for would be his. But a week before he was scheduled to ship out, the war to end all wars ended. A deflated Ike thought he had missed his chance at a big military career. Boy, was he wrong. But, like I said, the interwar years were not easy. The army downsized from 2.4 million men to 200,000 men over two years, which meant demotions and a vast loss of opportunity. Remember when Ike was running a camp of 10,000 men? Yeah, that was over. Instead, Ike sought opportunities to serve with and learn from the best minds in the army which required a series of international deployments to places like Asia and Panama that put tremendous strain on Ike and Mamie's marriage. But Ike and his marriage persevered through the peace years to emerge well-positioned for fame and glory in World War II. The start of Ike's World War II adventures came on June 24, 1941. Now, Let's set the picture. Nazi tanks had already defeated Poland and France by this time. Nazi planes were attempting to bomb England out of the war. And three million Nazi soldiers had just invaded the Soviet Union two days earlier. When Army Chief of Staff George Marshall summoned 51-year-old Dwight Eisenhower to Washington, D.C. Now, Marshall, he was widely regarded as one of the most talented men in the U.S. Army which is why President Roosevelt had jettisoned the old seniority-based promotion system to leapfrog Marshall over more senior men to run the whole damn army the day Germany invaded Poland back in 1939. Now, two years later, Marshall was seeing similar promise in Ike, 
And again, seniority was ignored to promote Eisenhower to chief of staff of the Third Army. From this point forward, Marshall would be Ike's greatest supporter and the man who made his future fame possible. As chief of staff of the Third Army, Ike was put in charge of a massive war game known as the Louisiana Maneuvers. This was designed to kick the rust off the army, see what it could do, and identify which officers needed to be promoted and which needed to be let go. Half a million men were deployed as the U.S. 2nd and 3rd Armies squared off in mock battles in which an aggressive tank commander named George Patton, a friend of Ike's, spanked the pants off a more timid adversary. The army learned a lot from the maneuvers, and Ike began to earn good press for his management of them. He was promoted to general shortly after. And then, on December 7th, 1941, a day that lives in infamy, Pearl Harbor was struck by the Empire of Japan. Four days later, Germany declared war too, and Marshall summoned Ike to work directly under him in Washington, D.C. And that's when Ike was presented with an amazing opportunity. Back during World War I, the Allied powers may have been allies, but they hadn't exactly worked well together. The British general in World War I, a man named John French, he hated the French. And the French didn't trust French either. The late-arriving Americans were seen as amateurs. And, most problematically, there was no single point of command. Everyone did what they wanted to do, pursuing their own strategies on their own timetables, which is not an effective way to wage a war. The Axis powers were suffering from the same issues on steroids during World War II. Germany didn't tell Italy about its plans to invade Russia. Japan didn't tell Germany it was about to hit Pearl Harbor. And Italy was constantly starting fights it could not finish, forcing Germany to bail it out in Africa and the Balkans. As the Americans and the Brits started collaborating during World War II, they agreed it might go much better if each theater had one point of command responsible for keeping the generals of both nations in line managing relations with politicians and the press, and serving as the ultimate arbiter of strategy at the highest level. And Ike was asked to write the job description. When Ike wrote this JD, everyone expected Marshall would be assigned the job in Europe. But Marshall was still needed to oversee, you know, the entire war in Washington, D.C. So Ike was sent to Europe instead. You know, as a temp. But temps don't usually lead multiple continental invasions. While Ike was over in Europe, he did a lot more than just hold the bag for Marshall. He oversaw the invasions of Africa, Sicily, and Italy. And the funny thing is, he kind of sucked as a strategist in every theater. Okay, sucked is too hard. He was not awful, but he wasn't great. He led from the rear, he made mistakes, and he wasn't exactly someone the Germans feared. Roosevelt and Churchill effectively promoted Ike upstairs by saying he was too important and busy to coordinate the ground war, and they put strategy in the hands of other generals instead. But Ike was very good at making sure his multinational forces got along, and he was great at spinning setbacks and defeats with the press. For example, when a German counterattack in Africa threw the Americans back 50 miles, 
Ike reported that it had been a great learning opportunity and the sands were running out for the Germans. <laughs> Which is exactly the kind of reporting Roosevelt and Churchill wanted from their supreme commander when their chief priority was maintaining support for the war at home. And so, when it came time to name a commander for the main event, the cross-channel invasion of Nazi-occupied France, D-Day, the job George Marshall was destined for, Franklin Roosevelt started to think that maybe destiny was shining on another man. The thing is, Ike had now led three successful invasions, and Marshall had led none. And Marshall now had ample Washington experience, while Ike had none. Sure, the three invasions Ike commanded hadn't been flawless, but perfect isn't really something you expect in war. They had been victories, and that's what counts. An aging General Pershing, the American commander from World War I, told FDR not to mix up a winning hand. Marshall, who badly wanted to command the invasion of France, put duty over ambition and told Franklin Roosevelt that he could assign whoever he liked to take that command. And Frank liked Ike. When Ike arrived in England, most of the prep had already been completed. The armies would be led by generals closer to the ground. Ike, he would run interference with press and the politicians. But there was one big decision put on Ike's desk. Final word on when to invade France. And it proved to be a hell of a decision. Because just before the invasion was scheduled to begin, the weather turned south. Way south. The plan had been to attack the night of June 5th when a full moon would make coordinating the massive air and sea armadas possible. But thick clouds, whipping wind, and torrential rain turned visibility to zero. Ike, he couldn't launch the attack. Without the light of the moon, his planes and boats would collide. Paratroopers would be lost. Landing sites would be quagmires. It would have been a disaster. So Ike postponed for 24 hours. And then... He was presented with a forecast and a choice. The supreme allied weatherman, let's call him, predicted a temporary gap in the weather the night of June 6th. But weather forecasting in 1944 wasn't exactly an exact science. The guy could be wrong. The Americans didn't know it, but the Germans predicted the storms were going to hold. And the thing is, a 160,000-man invasion isn't exactly something that can turn on a dime. It takes hours for troops to load up and take to the sky and sea. The order to invade would have to be given before the skies cleared. And shoot, I mean, how often are weather forecasts accurate today? The pressure on Ike must have been immense. If the attack didn't go forward on June 6th, it would be two weeks before the tides would be right to try again. Two weeks for the Germans to find out where the attack was coming and prepare to defend it. But if the attack went forward and the weather didn't improve, it could fail. It had taken two years to prepare for this invasion. How many more would it take to try another? Surrounded by his generals in a war council, Ike thought on it for a moment. Go or no go? And then he said, okay, we'll go. The invasion commenced that night. To the soldiers of the invasion, Ike wrote the following letter. 
a letter that every man received a copy of. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade towards which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. to The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle man-to-man. An air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The freemen of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck! And let us beseech the blessing of an almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Ike also wrote a separate letter, one that was signed and placed in an envelope after the invasion was ordered, but before he knew the outcome. Written during those terrible hours when he waited in a storm and prayed it would lift so the invasion could succeed. Quote, My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. That is leadership. Fortunately for Ike, the soldiers, and the Western world, the storm lifted. The Nazis had expected the attack further east in France and were caught flat-footed. Their only commander with authority to issue orders had gone home to Germany, confident the storm would prevent any Allied attack. And so German troops were delayed in attempting any counterpunches. By the time they tried, it was too late. The invasion had been a success. Europe would be free. Now, the invasion of Normandy did not end World War II. But once the Allies had their foothold in France, they would not be dislodged. Eisenhower would hold on to his role as supreme Allied commander in Europe to the end of the war. There is one more incident I want to mention from World War II. On April 4th, 1945, Eisenhower was told the army had found something outside the town of Gotha in central Germany and he had to come to see what it was. As Ike approached, he saw what appeared to be a prison camp of some sorts. There were guard towers, barracks, barbed wire fences, but something was wrong. There were too many dead bodies, piles of them, some covered in lime, others stacked in pyres. The lingering survivors were emaciated and told stories of horror. Eisenhower and the U.S. Army had just found their first Nazi concentration camp, a factory of death where the Holocaust was carried out against Jews 
and other undesirables. One of Ike's first thoughts was, nobody is going to believe humans were capable of doing this to other humans. So we set about documenting the camps through photographs and video recordings. He made all the Germans from surrounding villages walk through the camp to see what had happened so they would never be able to deny it. And he sent reports back to Washington describing what he saw. Responses like Ike's are how we know the Holocaust happened and how we know to be wary of it ever happening again. One month later, Hitler shot himself and Germany surrendered. Ike's war in Europe was over, and he entered the next phase of his life one of the most famous and popular people on the planet. Expectations of a political future for the liberator of Europe began immediately. Harry Truman, who had unexpectedly inherited the presidency in the final months of the war, twice told Eisenhower that Ike could have the presidency with Truman's support if he would just run as a Democrat in 1948. But Eisenhower declined. Nobody knew it yet, but he wasn't a Democrat. Plus, Ike had something else he wanted to do first. Stand up NATO. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is an international alliance of the United States, Canada, and Western Europe that was established in 1951 to provide joint security for Western Europe against Soviet aggression. As the former Supreme Allied Commander of World War II, Eisenhower was a natural pick to pull it all together. But then, Ike ran into resistance at home. Conservative GOP senator and presidential hopeful Robert Taft, the son of former president and former Supreme Court Chief Justice William Howard Taft, opposed American involvement in NATO. In a callback to pre-war American sentiment, Taft and other conservatives didn't want the United States signing treaties that committed it to the defense of anyone. These men were isolationist. Now, Eisenhower, he met with Taft and urged Taft to drop his opposition to NATO. Ike even promised not to run for president in 1952 if Taft would just support NATO. But Taft refused, and the rivalry was officially on. Even as Ike focused on NATO and Europe, he allowed his friends back home to organize a shadow campaign for the Republican presidential nomination. And it was not hard. Ike was so popular that people were voting for him in primaries before he had even declared an official interest in the presidency. Then, less than a week before the GOP convention, Ike resigned from NATO to make his presidential bid official. It would take a fight at the Republican convention to win the nomination, but it was a fight Ike was ready to make. 604 was the magic number of delegates needed to win the nomination. Taft and Eisenhower each came into the convention with roughly 500 securely in the bag, one either through primaries in the states that offered them, or the machinations of state-level conventions where primaries didn't exist yet. But each candidate claimed to enter the convention with more, and a big fight was brewing over the fate of 70 contested delegates from the South. The thing is, 
The South was still mostly yellow dog Democrats, folks whose daddies and granddaddies had voted Democrat ever since the Civil War, and they would be damned if they were going to vote for the party of Lincoln. So the Republican Party in those states was quite small. Until Eisenhower joined. Ike was so incredibly popular that large numbers of Democrats showed up to that year's Republican primaries to throw their lot behind Eisenhower. The small, old party machines balked at these Johnny-come-latelys. Were Southern Republicans really going to let non-Republicans decide their nominee? Shoot, Eisenhower wouldn't even say he was a Republican until after the primaries were over and just before the convention started. How can a party nominate a guy who won't even say he's a member of that party? So, these old-school institutionalists tried to ignore the primary results and declare their state's delegates for Taft instead. And that's the question that was put before the convention. Would the Republican National Convention seat the longtime Republicans who supported Taft or the Johnny-come-latelys who supported Eisenhower? That's when a young California senator named Richard Nixon got involved. California's Republican governor, Earl Warren, hoped the convention would turn to him as a compromise candidate if Taft and Ike deadlocked in a tie. Nixon convinced Warren that the best chance of making that happen was to have his California delegation support seating Ike's southern delegates over Taft's. What Warren did not know was that Nixon was secretly working for the Eisenhower campaign. And those Southern delegates, they wouldn't give Ike a tie, they would give him a win. With California's help, Ike got the 70 Southern delegates, and the first ballot showed him within a whisper of the nomination. And then enough delegates switched their votes from other states to make it official. Dwight Eisenhower would be the 1952 GOP presidential nominee. After winning the nomination, Ike's advisors asked him, who did he want as vice president? Ike was surprised. He thought the convention chose. They said, uh, well, you can make a recommendation and the convention will probably follow it. So Ike suggested a number of businessmen renowned for their executive capabilities. Ike's advisors said, well, what you really want is an established Republican politician the convention will recognize, preferably someone young and from the West, to balance the ticket. And then they recommended 40-year-old California Senator Richard Nixon. Ike said sure, and the convention acceded to his wishes. We'll hear a lot more about this Nixon fella down the road. As Ike pivoted to the general election, he felt pretty confident that moderates would cast their lot with him, just as they had in the primaries but he was nervous that disappointed conservatives might stay home on election day. So, to shore up their support, he jumped in bed with them. Ike did this by picking fights with Truman, who Ike had always gotten along with, and by staying quiet when GOP Senator Joseph McCarthy accused Ike's longtime mentor and patron George Marshall of being a communist stooge. This was bullcrap. And Ike knew it, but he was too afraid of offending the political right to speak up during the election. So instead of saying anything, he appeared on stage with McCarthy during the campaign. He didn't say anything for or against McCarthy that day, 
but the picture of Ike standing at McCarthy's side painted a picture of endorsement. An endorsement that soon proved an embarrassment when it was reported that Ike had prepared remarks including praise for Marshall that day only to cut out that praise to avoid provoking McCarthy. That earned Ike some ridicule. There was also a big scandal in the campaign around Ike's vice presidential pick, Richard Nixon, but I'm going to save that for Tricky Dick's episode. Ike's general strategy of appealing to conservatives did work. After 20 years of Democratic rule, the Republican Party finally broke through and recaptured the White House in 1952, defeating the intellectual Illinois governor Adlai Stevenson 442 to 89 in the Electoral College and 34 million to 27 million in the popular vote. If there was one pivotal moment in the campaign, it came right near the end when Ike was asked what he would do to resolve the deeply unpopular and deadlocked war in Korea. I will go to Korea, he said. He didn't offer a plan. He just said he'd go and people ate it up. But shoot, even if he hadn't said that, the bipartisan appeal of the liberator of Europe meant victory was never really in doubt. We all still remember the slogan, I like Ike. And so, on January 20th, 1953, 62-year-old Dwight Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander of Europe, who had risen from a childhood of poverty to be the savior of Western Europe, was elected the 34th president of the United States of America, the first Republican president in 20 years. But what did the world and the country look like when Eisenhower became president? Let's look around. Internationally, the Cold War was setting in. An iron curtain had fallen across Europe as Soviet troops refused to yield the land they had taken from the Nazis. And Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin was putting the pieces in place for war with the West. Russian agents had stolen the secrets of the atomic bomb and were pushing communism across the globe. China had fallen. Proxy wars between the East and West were being raged in Korea, Malaysia, Kenya, and French Vietnam. The West was meeting these Soviet maneuvers with plays of their own. The Marshall Plan was pumping money into the rebuilding of Western Europe, and a new American spy agency, the CIA, was showing it, too, could influence international affairs. And on the home front, Senator McCarthy, who Ike had failed to stand up to during his campaign, was accusing anyone who looked at him sideways of being a communist. The world seemed to be in crisis. Now, I'm going to get to Senator Joseph McCarthy in my next episode, an interview with historian Larry Tai on McCarthyism and Eisenhower, so hang tight for that. But the Spark Notes version is Ike did eventually stand up to McCarthy, and McCarthy did eventually self-destruct. But what about the other challenges that faced Eisenhower? The spread of communism, the economy, and racial justice at home. Well, this is kind of funny, but Ike mostly followed the Truman playbook. He supported NATO, of course he did, but he also backed the Marshall Plan, most of the New Deal, and he refused to cut taxes until after the budget had been balanced. 
He also followed Truman's same approach to ending the Korean War. Yeah, uh, remember that I will go to Korea bit? Ike went, said, well, this is horrible, and then told the State Department to keep doing what they'd been doing and seek a peaceful end to the war. The only difference on Korea is that Ike got lucky because Stalin died. That's right. Joseph Stalin, the other asshole Joseph in this episode, and the murderous dictator of Russia for the past 30-odd years, finally bit the bullet on March 5, 1953, just months after Ike's inauguration. Now, leadership transitions are always perilous matters, especially in dictatorships. If you haven't seen the semi-fictional movie Death of Stalin, I highly recommend you check it out. And the men struggling for control of Russia quickly concluded the Korean War was one too many things to be worrying about. Ike exploited this opportune moment by approaching the Russians with a carrot and a stick. The carrot was a speech that signaled his desire for peace, and I think I have the audio right here. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. That was the carrot. The stick was when Ike had an Indian diplomat relay a threat to Moscow and Beijing that the United States would attack China with, quote, no limit on weapons if the shooting didn't stop on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, Ike's telling the commies that they can have peace or nuclear winter, their choice, and they chose peace. Uh, according to Ike's vice president, Richard Nixon, Ike later told Nixon that the nukes thing had all been a bluff. But if it was, I mean, hot damn, the bluff worked, and Nixon, oh, he took note. The final sticking point on peace ended up being the South Koreans, who wanted to keep fighting. So Ike basically told them, good luck fighting when we stop providing you with ammunition, and they came around pretty quickly after that. So the two Koreas, at the insistence of Russia and the United States, agreed to an armistice that ended the fighting, but not technically the war. The United States is still technically at war with North Korea. Why not? But this experience got Ike thinking. The president didn't want the Soviets to be inspired by Korea to start little brushfire wars with Americans all over the world. Ike also feared that small wars could spiral into nuclear ones if calmer heads didn't prevail. So he basically came up with an entirely new form of foreign policy. He would drastically cut funding for the army and navy and put all of that money into the air force and nuclear weapons instead. The message was clear. If you mess with us, you'll get the bomb. So do not mess. But throwing out all your tools except the cudgel is, of course, insane. You know what they say, if all you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like nails. So Ike secretly kept one other tool, a scalpel, the CIA. The CIA had been founded by Harry Truman just a few years earlier to serve as the country's international espionage service. Truman had even handed out black cloaks and wooden daggers at the secret ceremony establishing the agency. Funny sense of humor, that guy. And the CIA had quickly proven its effectiveness. In 1948, 
the whole world had expected Italy to elect a pro-Soviet government that would align the Italians with the communists. But then the CIA started funneling significant sums of money to pro-Western Italian politicians. That money breathed new life into their campaigns, and they scored shocking victories. It was the first CIA op, and it swung Italy from likely Soviet satellite to member of the Western Alliance. That is a hell of a return on investment. When Ike got into office, he looked at those results and said, let's see what else he could do. And his first target was Iran. A bit of background. Iran, and especially Iran's oil supply, had been dominated by the British Empire for decades. The British had come in and developed the oil wells, and then pocketed 84% of the profits. The Iranians came to resent this, and in 1951, they elected a prime minister who nationalized the oil industry, as in the state of Iran, seized the assets. All of that oil money stopped going to British bank accounts and started benefiting the people of Iran instead. At first, Britain was actually cool with this. But then an election occurred, and an old friend, Winston Churchill, was re-elected. And Churchill is not exactly the kind of guy to tolerate a decline of British power anywhere. So Churchill's government started lobbying the Americans to support a coup in Iran with the goal of putting an autocratic shah, basically a king, in control. The Shah would have free reign to do whatever he liked, so long as England got its hands on all that sweet, sweet oil money. Ike was initially dubious, but then the CIA, acting without Eisenhower's permission or awareness, started paying Iranians to foment street protests. When Ike saw the violence in the streets, and when the Brits said, Did you know, old boy, that there exists a communist party in Iran, and that Iran has a long border with the Soviet Union? and that it would suck mightily if all of that oil fell into Russia's hands? Ike listened to them and said, sure, let's do a coup. And the CIA got to work. From August 14th to 19th, 1953, the CIA's Iran team, which was led by Theodore Roosevelt's son, Kermit, put the right money in the right pockets to trigger riots that swept the Iranian prime minister from power. The Shah was installed. The nationalized oil company was put back under British control. Iranians couldn't even examine its books or serve on its board. And Ike started thinking, hey, this is pretty great. You used to have to wage wars to install puppet governments. Now you can just do it with a few well-placed dollars. And they started looking for other opportunities to put this new agency to work. I'll mention one more. In 1954, American business leaders started getting annoyed that Guatemala's politicians weren't playing ball the way they used to. So, it was time to do a coup again. The Guatemala plan was all kinds of crazy, and I can't believe it worked. The CIA got its hands on a few planes, made sure they didn't look American, and began flying a few bombing missions over Guatemala's capital. As the planes were taking off, a CIA radio station jammed all local transmissions and played false reports of a massive uprising advancing on the capital. The thing is, there was no massive uprising advancing on the capital. In truth, there were just 150 mercenaries at a church in the boonies. But these radio transmissions 
combined with the sight of planes flying overhead, panicked Guatemala's president into resigning and the coup succeeded. It was basically as if that famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast, you know the one where some listeners actually thought aliens were invading, it was almost as if that had resulted in the overthrow of a democratically elected government. Wild. So the American government now had two tools in its international tool belt, nuclear war and the CIA. I did realize, though, that if the only option for war was a nuclear one, there was a risk that if either country thought the other was about to attack, they might launch an all-out nuclear assault first to try to catch the other guy while his planes were still on the ground. To mitigate this risk of surprise attack, Ike had a proposal, the Open Skies Initiative. The idea was the Soviets and the Americans would allow each other's surveillance planes to fly over their military bases. This way, each country could rest assured knowing the other country's military wasn't mobilizing to strike, and the risk of a surprise nuclear war would be zero. The Soviets thought this was a terrible idea. American planes over Soviet bases? Hell no! They wouldn't do it. So the Americans launched their planes anyway. The thing is, the American aerospace industry had been developing a new type of spy plane for years. And in 1955, it was ready. Capable of flying at 70,000 feet, the U-2 spy plane operated at a height that Soviet rockets and airplanes could not reach. Remember the scene in Iron Man 1 when the suit froze and stalled out in the upper atmosphere? The U-2 could get pictures of that happening to Russian rockets and MiGs that tried to intercept it. They would stall out and fall back to Earth. This was all very embarrassing for the Russians, who now couldn't protest the illegal incursions of their airspace on the world stage because that would require admitting that they didn't have the technology to shoot the planes down. Until, until the day they did shoot one down. On May 1st, 1960, the final year of Ike's presidency, CIA operative Francis Gary Powers. That's right, the CIA flew these planes to preserve plausible deniability for the U.S. military. He took off in his U-2 plane from Pakistan for a flight over some military installations in southern Russia. And he got shot down. When Ike heard the news, he was disappointed, but he'd known the risk. He knew Russian missile technology was getting better. Plus, he'd been assured by the CIA that if one of these spy planes ever was shot down, nothing on board, and certainly not the pilot, would survive. Boy, was the CIA wrong on that one. When the Soviets first announced they had shot down a U.S. spy plane, Ike went to a prepared cover story. That wasn't a spy plane, that was a weather plane! It had drifted off course due to a malfunction, and those mean old Russians shot it down. Shame on them. But then the Russians revealed the spy photos they'd recovered from the wreckage. And then they revealed the pilot was alive, and they had him. Ike and the United States had been caught in a lie on the world stage, violating international law by overflying Russia and attempting to deny it. When Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev tried to make hay of it at an international conference, French President Charles de Gaulle rose to Ike's defense, saying, Our two have been overflown. By your American allies? asked Khrushchev. No, by you! 
That satellite you launched just before you left Moscow to impress us overflew the sky of France 18 times without my permission. How do I know you do not have a cameras aboard which are taking pictures of my country? You don't think I would do a thing like that. Well, how did you take those pictures of the far side of the moon? That one had cameras. Ah, that one had cameras. Pray continue. Ha 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 ha. The age of the satellite had arrived. The CIA pilot would eventually be returned in a spy exchange during the Kennedy administration, basically a peace offering from Khrushchev to the new president. For Ike, it was embarrassing, but the intelligence gathered by four years of U-2 flights had been well worth it. So that's a lot of international affairs. Let's hit two domestic accomplishments and then wrap up this bad boy. Highways. In 1954, the American economy started to turn south as the Korean War wound down. How many times have we said it's hard to demobilize without taking an economic hit? So Ike wanted a public works program. But public works programs were kind of the Democrats' thing. Republicans were supposed to be all about small government. And GOP congressmen weren't about to let Ike go on a spending spree to create jobs. So Ike had to get original. Ike he thought back to an adventure from his interwar years. Back in 1919, he'd been tasked to join a military convoy attempting to travel from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco by road. The United States had been crisscrossed by train tracks since the 19th century, but an interstate road system was a bit more theoretical. The Army frankly wasn't sure a road trip could even be done. A convoy equipped with road and bridge building equipment and a mobile repair shop crawled across the nation, reportedly having to stop every 15 miles to repair tires destroyed by the bad roads and some of the worst stretches. They did eventually make it to San Francisco, 62 days after leaving Washington, D.C. And Ike was left thinking, gosh, the United States sure could use a better road network than that. But what could something different look like? Ike found the answer in Germany during the closing months of World War II, when the Allied armors crossed into Germany proper and discovered miles and miles of German Autobahn, government-constructed highway. The Nazi government had built the highway system as a military measure before the war. Better roads made it easier to deploy men and resources more quickly. Aha, Ike thought. What if my public works program is an interstate highway system positioned as a military necessity. And that's the pitch he went with. Ike called for $101 billion over 10 years to build 41,000 miles of superhighway, linking all U.S. cities with a population of more than 50,000 people. It was the largest single public works program ever proposed. And the initial bill died in Congress over a dispute about how to fund the construction. But Ike didn't stop trying. A compromise was reached when a four-cent gasoline tax was proposed to fund construction, effectively passing the cost of building and maintaining the highway onto the people using it. The interstate highway bill succeeded in bolstering the economy through government spending and gave the United States an invaluable transit network that we still rely on today. But that wasn't the only time Ike borrowed from the Democratic playbook. 
He also raised minimum wage from 75 cents to a dollar an hour. And he expanded Social Security eligibility and increased its payout in 1954. If you adjust for inflation, his minimum wage is higher than it is today. There was one other major domestic episode that occurred on Eisenhower's watch. The Little Rock Nine. This is a story that blows my mind. And it starts with the Supreme Court. Remember Earl Warren? the Republican governor of California who played a key role in the GOP convention that nominated Eisenhower? Well, in 1953, Ike returned the favor by nominating Warren Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And Warren's confirmation kicked off the most progressive era in Supreme Court history. The Warren Court is where we got decisions defending interracial marriage, free speech, and the right to purchase contraceptives, to name a few. But the biggest ruling of all came in 1954 when the court heard a case on school segregation where NAACP Chief Counsel Thurgood Marshall argued that the old doctrine of separate but equal, which the court had first enshrined in Plessy v. Ferguson 60 years earlier, was unconstitutional and should no longer stand. And the Warren Court agreed with him, unanimously. But just because the court declared something unconstitutional didn't mean everyone jumped straight away to complying. All across the South, communities had the same response to Brown v. Board of Education that old Andrew Jackson had when the court ruled against one of his positions in 1832, which was nice ruling it got there. Good luck enforcing it. Schools had been ordered to desegregate, but they were slow doing it. And one of the first schools to try became a national flashpoint, Little Rock High in Little Rock, Arkansas. The black and white communities of Little Rock had gotten along pretty well by Southern standards, so the white school board had said, how about we let nine high-performing students from the African-American school enroll at the segregated white school in 1957? That will show everyone that it's not so bad and we can fully integrate in the years that follow. Well, it seems some white families disagreed with the school board because a group of white students brought a lawsuit against the school that caught the attention of the state's governor, Orville Faubus, who saw this as a chance to score some political points. Claiming that gun sales in Little Rock had skyrocketed and he feared violence that the blacks were allowed on campus, Faubus deployed 250 Arkansas National Guardsmen to block the African-American students from going to school. When the black students attempted to show up, an angry crowd of 500 white racists met them with obscenities and threats of violence that drove them away. And that's when Ike got involved. Ike first tried to convince Governor Faubus to change the guardsmen orders from blocking the student's entry to preventing violence, but Faubus refused to go along. When a court compelled him to, he ordered the National Guard to go home instead. The following Monday, when the nine African-American students showed up at school, 1,000 angry white protesters, many from out of town, were there to meet them. Local police escorted the nine students into the school through a side door, but then the protesters forced their way in and the students had to be rushed out. The local mayor cabled Ike for federal support, saying the mob had been organized by allies of Fabus, and Ike leapt to action. He issued a proclamation commanding all persons engaged in such obstruction of justice to cease and desist therefrom and to disperse forthwith. But the white mob refused. 
White protesters rioted on Main Street that evening, attacking any blacks they found and throwing bricks through the windows of black-owned businesses and cruising through black neighborhoods in heavily armed cars to intimidate the black residents. Because Ike's orders to disperse had been violated, he was legally in the clear to escalate. The following day, Ike dispatched the 101st Airborne Division, the guys from Band of Brothers, to Little Rock High School. Ike also federalized the Arkansas National Guard, which meant they would follow his orders, not Fabus's, and ordered them all to stay away. By midday Tuesday, massive cargo planes carrying hundreds of paratroopers were landing in Little Rock. When the racist mob tried to block the nine African-American students from entering school for a third day, they found the 101st waiting for them, deployed with fixed bayonets and maintaining positions around the school. When white protesters approached the paratroopers, the soldiers advanced on them, elbow to elbow. By 9 a.m., the area had been cleared. Meanwhile, the nine black children gathered at a nearby home, as they always did, and waited to hear what they should do. An army officer appeared at the door. We're ready for the children. We'll return them to your home at 3.30. Finally, the students were going to school. Most of the country supported Ike's handling of the situation, but the South, you might be shocked, opposed it. One Southern senator even compared Ike's troops to Hitler's stormtroopers, which really sent Ike through the roof. Elements of the 101st stayed in Little Rock through Thanksgiving to make sure the protesters didn't return. Eight of the original nine students graduated from Little Rock High. One went on to serve as Assistant Secretary of Labor under Jimmy Carter. Another said of the experience, quote, For the first time in my life, I felt like an American citizen. Governor Faubus was re-elected several more times and served a record 12 years as governor of the Razorback State. The struggle for African American equality was not over yet. On January 21st, 1961, Ike stepped down from the presidency. A constitutional amendment had made it illegal to run for a third term in 1947, but Ike was probably ready for retirement anyway. On his way out the door, he issued his famous warning to, quote, beware the military-industrial complex. The military would always ask for more money, he knew. And while his military experience gave him the wisdom and confidence to say no, he feared the men who followed him wouldn't be so resilient. As he'd said several years before, quote, Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. So how had the United States and the world changed during the eight years of the Eisenhower administration? Let's look around. The most momentous international story from Ike's years was the end of European imperialism with the Suez Crisis of 1956. I'm going to try to find a historian to dive deeper into this crisis, uh, but basically, Egypt seized the Suez Canal from England, and England didn't like that, so it convinced France and Israel to team up for an invasion of Egypt. The shocking twist came when the United States and the Soviet Union said, hey, you got to get out of there or else, and all sides were forced to pull back. This humiliation, the United States forcing European nations to abandon an imperial adventure in their own backyard, made it clear to all that the times they were a-changin'. 
There had also been communist gains in Vietnam, where a North Vietnamese victory over French occupiers resulted in the country being divided in two, a communist North and a French occupied South. Promises were made about holding a vote on reunification later, but those promises were quietly abandoned when it became clear that reunification under a communist banner would have been the likely outcome. There had also been a revolution in Cuba where a young Fidel Castro had seized power. It's not for nothing that Ike started talking about the domino theory in 1953. Also in 1953, the first recorded summiting of Mount Everest. It was accomplished by a team of multinational climbers from across the British Commonwealth. And the world was introduced to Agent 007 when a former World War II intelligence officer named Ian Fleming published his first spy thriller about James Bond. Its title, Casino Royale. In Liverpool, three boys named John, Paul, and George formed a musical group called the Quarrymen in 1958. Before Ike was out of office, they would add a drummer named Ringo and change their name to the Beatles. The British invasion is just around the corner. Stateside, IBM introduced the first personal computer controlled by a keyboard in 1957, Alaska and Hawaii became the 49th and 50th states in 1959, and Alfred Hitchcock released Psycho and Harper Lee published To Kill a Mockingbird in 1960. Congress also added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954 and began printing In God We Trust on American Dollars in 1955. These were both plays to differentiate ourselves from the commies, but it could be interpreted as an erosion of the separation of church and state as well. Ike also suffered a heart attack in 1955 that briefly put Richard Nixon and the cabinet in charge of the country, but don't worry, he got better. But that was all in the rearview mirror for Ike when he retired to his farm at Gettysburg in 1961, the same place he got in his first break in the army all those years earlier. He also had property in California and a house on Augusta National Golf Course, and no, you can't afford those things on a president or a general salaries. But Ike, he had written stellar biography about the liberation of Europe, and, you know, when you're president, you can make a lot of rich friends who buy you nice things. Ike spent his final years golfing, playing bridge, painting, and spending time with his grandkids. On April 20th, 1968, he felt a severe pain in his chest during a round of golf. It was a heart attack. He was taken to a nearby Air Force base, then Walter Reed, but he didn't respond to treatment. A series of heart attacks continued, and on March 27th, Ike told his son John to remove him from life support. I've had enough, John. Tell them to let me go. He died at 12.35 p.m. the following day, surrounded by family and doctors. What? Uh, life. So, if you're going to remember three things about Eisenhower, I'd recommend, first, the supreme commander in Europe succeeded not because he was a military genius, but because he was great at getting people with strong opinions to work along. Second, for better or worse, Ike embraced a new way of enacting foreign policy. Ike didn't want big armies, so he focused on a nuclear deterrent to prevent future attack and he honed the new Central Intelligence Agency into a tool that could achieve hostile international aims without international war. And third, Ike's support for the Little Rock Nine was critical for advancing the cause of desegregation. 
If Ike hadn't deployed the 101st Airborne to escort those children to school, there's a chance Brown v. Board of Education never would have been carried out. Now, what can we learn about leadership from Dwight Eisenhower? I think the answer is, don't let ideology get in the way of progress. Ike is possibly the most moderate president we've ever had. He was certainly a Republican, but he wasn't afraid of borrowing from the Democratic playbook when needed, like the highway program or raising the minimum wage. The result was a presidency that was successful and a legacy that's enduringly popular. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends and family about the show. Then leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast, or you can find me on threads, Kenny.Ryan27. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll interview journalist and author Larry Tai on the era of McCarthyism, the five sitting or future presidents who participated in the drama and how it all came crashing down on Eisenhower's watch. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.